Do you think that you're going to be a rock star? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm going to be famous rock star, yeah. Yeah, so I want to be a rock star. Going to be a rock star is... I'm going to be a rock star. I am going to be. I mean, I wouldn't mind being like, you know, a rock star or nothing. But as long as rock star is defined as rich and rich, I think that it'll come pretty easily for me, you know, because I'm different from everyone else. What if you don't make it as a rock star? Oh, I will. But what if you don't? In 10 years, what are you going to be doing? See, I, I will, though, see. What if you don't make it? I, but I will. I will make it. For sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to quit until I do. The main key is perseverance, and I will persevere. That question is not in my mind. The minute you doubt is the minute you lose it. What if I don't make it? I'll find a vacant drainage ditch or something and lay my bed down. I don't know, I end up on Skid Row or something. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to be. Doesn't but... it worry you? No. I'm like him, though. It really doesn't enter my mind. I, ha I can't really, I can't picture not making it. It's just... you, you see, if you came and heard us, you'd, you'd really, you'd think the same thing, too. You're listening to 66.6 FM, Radio TOVH, The Flush. Well, hey there, everybody. It's me, Joe Thrashenkill. You're listening to another thrilling episode of The Toilet of Hell Radio Show. I'm joined today by the good and golden boy. You know him. You love him. He's the 365 Days of Horror, or as I like to call him, Jordan. Jordan, how are you? I'm good, Joe. How are you? I'm good, man. I realized uh, this week as I was thinking, like, what the fuck are we going to do for a show? That we have talked about this particular subject many, many times, but we've never done a dedicated show about it. And I feel like that's a huge miss because this is really like the lodestone upon which uh, I think all of my feelings about metal hang uh, in that it is mostly an object of derision. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about doing this for a long time. And I think it's one of those things that's just so ingrained in both of us and pretty much anyone who likes heavy music around our age that we just skip over it by accident it's like common knowledge so why talk about it yeah but we probably should talk about it i mean i i, I know that we do have younger listeners and it's possible they haven't seen this in which case uh kids uh, gather around because uh, this is a this is a very this is a very important program um this this movie Penelope Spheris' Decline of Western Civilization, Part 2, The Metal Years, is available on YouTube. It's on Tubi. Uh, I probably have, like, a VHS copy somewhere. You know, it's it's everywhere. If you want to watch it, it is easily available. Uh, but it is so very important. Uh, we did an episode years ago about The Decline of Western Civilization, Part 1, The Punk Years. Do you remember doing that one, Jordan? I do. That was a fun one, and that focused on a handful of well-known punk bands and people within those bands, and it was just kind of a like fly-on-the-wall type documentary with some helpful prodding questions, just kind of capturing uh, specifically like the L.A. California punk scene and just the craziness and the characters involved. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing. Uh, these these legendary names when they were so very young. You're seeing Black Flag. You're seeing Circle Jerks. 
you're seeing Darby crash, struggle to read. <laughs> it's it's really a, quite a, quite an interesting time. Uh, I believe that one was maybe filmed in 1979, released in 1980. Uh, this one, a uh, good eight years after the fact, 1988 uh, film detailing, I guess the the highest of the highs uh, of the hair metal days. Uh, or just right on the precipice of the decline, anyway, of those days. Um, and it features a whole shit ton of bands that have disappeared from the face of the earth, as well as some that, you know, we all know, we all love. There's, of course, Dave Mustaine and the Megadeths. There's Lemmy. Uh, there is, uh, there's Ozzy uh, making breakfast. It's, uh, and we'll, we'll get to that, of course. Uh, over, overall, it's a good time. Um, when did you first see this one, man? This was kind of like the other movie reviewed with the tribute bands. It was just constantly on IFC hmm. when I had cable in high school. So every time it would show up while flicking channels, I'd have to stop and watch it. Maybe not all the way through, but with this movie, it, there's so many like iconic scenes and well-known scenes, especially for people who just like heavy metal that you have to kind of watch the slow motion car crash and it's become part of like our lexicon in a way oh absolutely at least for older metalheads of you know you could just say but i'm gonna make it oh yeah i'm gonna but, make but it. i'm gonna make it and people will know what you're referencing uh, i'm going to be uh, as big as jim morrison <laughs> like um I first saw this, I think I rented it from uh, the mom and pop video shop when I was in college. I don't know particularly why. It might have been a staff recommendation there. And that, you know, I rented it like seven or eight more times after that just to make people come over and wash it with me. Uh, just because, God damn, how could you not love this one? You know, with uh, the, the decline part one, it's, you know, it's an interesting watch, but it's not just pure fun, pure stupid ass fun like this one. There's there's some good moments in the first one, for sure. But this one is an hour and a half of just watching with your mouth open at some points and laughing and cringing and just kind of, especially years later, looking back now and seeing, wow, this band is still around and is still headlining festivals. And who is this? What band is this? This band driving around L.A. in a Corvette saying it's going to happen any day now. They're going to get signed in the next three weeks and they're just gone forever. And who is this quirky kid getting sentenced to years in federal prison? <laughs> All these questions and more pop up in this movie. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I don't have it's tough to talk about this movie uh, line by line because, you know, it, it's a documentary it uh, doesn't follow any necessarily uh, you know, strict plot structures, but there are things that we have to talk about here. Um, opening up, you you get a, a look at some of the first faces, uh, and one of which we see a couple of times. I think probably my favorite non-affiliated um, person in the movie is uh, Darlene Petnikio. Uh, do you know Dar Darlene Petnikio? Was she a radio DJ for Neck? No, I'm thinking of the very stern middle-aged probation officer. Ah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and we're never really given an explanation of why she's in the movie. I mean, I know why. Yes. But there's just no background. It's just this 
vice principal looking lady talking we, about heavy metal. Yes, with uh, shoulder pads, you know, bigger than your favorite NFL linemen's. Like it was such a good fashion choice back then. Uh, but she offers a very succinct and accurate description of heavy metal's history within the first like minute of this movie where she's like you know bands like black sabbath and deep purple uh jimi hendrix always paved the groundwork to the uh you know the the rock and roll uh stylings that we have now with heavy metal i'm like oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) yes you are correct um, she has a few really good points, uh, when she, she pops in a couple of times throughout the movie and has a few really good points. She also details, uh, you know, uh, the rampant misogyny within both the imagery and the actual actors of heavy metal, uh, and, uh, does, it does a pretty good job of that. Uh, unfortunately, she also does describe, uh, the, uh, demonic forces, uh, hidden within these records, which I, I say probably that was not the case. <laughs> One of her best moments is she explains the devil horns. Oh, yes. And how within the devil horns, you could see a secret six on one side with your like thumb and forefinger. On the other side, your pinky and the rest of your hand is a six. And then there's a mystery six somewhere in the middle. I didn't but apparently quite. That is why they do that. I think she counted one of those sixes twice, but she did have a good note there that, you know, between your uh, pointer finger and your pinky, uh, you have uh, two fingers down and then your thumb, which is supposed to be also down, which is denying the Trinity. <laughs> I thought it was just so you could have a little field goal when your friend kicks a paper football through it. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, um, she's accurate on a lot of things, not so much on that one. Uh, I appreciate that Penelope Spheres, the director of this film, asks her point blank, do you think that Ozzy is an agent of Satan? <laughs> to which Darlene giggles and it immediately just pans over to an interview with Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> yeah, she didn't say it, but it was very, uh, come on. Like, come on. Come, obviously. Come on now. <laughs> and then it's this coked out 80s Ozzy making breakfast in someone else's place. It wasn't his kitchen that he was doing it i i'd say that we could probably get this out of the way right at the top of this show uh in that of the many iconic scenes contained within this documentary i think everyone's favorite is probably ozzy fucking up breakfast and uh you know you've got you've got ozzy with his incredible feathered mullet uh wearing a a, a bathrobe smoking a cigarette in the kitchen and just basically destroying everything on a uh, cooktop and the you know it's zoom the camera zooms in on his shaking hands spilling orange juice everywhere and it's all talking about doing drugs yes how he fucked up his life with drugs and he's been struggling to stay sober and it actually kind of sucks a lot uh but this footage or at least the footage of the breakfast it's it's been a ruse all this time what what do you make of that jordan it's like one of the funniest scenes in the movie, if you don't like know about it going in, is because you know for all of the admission of being coked to the gills throughout most of the eighties and for most of his career, uh, Ozzy's pretty lucid in his interview as much as Ozzy can be, and he's you know self-reflective. He knows his problems. He's talked about them and just the craziness of going on tour and getting ripped off by his previous manager. And when he's making this breakfast and earlier, I think he's making just this saddest looking bacon. (laughs) He's boiling water. He's doing all this stuff. And he's talking about his drug usage. 
and it cuts to a hand pouring orange juice and his hands are shaking, spilling orange juice all over the table. And it's just, it's a perfect moment. It's just so funny. And it sucks that it's not true. Like, it, it's it's a little bit like finding out Santa Claus isn't real for a little kid. I agree with you. And I, I wish I wish it was true. It's just, it's not. And it, it, it casts a, a shadow on the rest of this otherwise unimpeachable film. <laughs> I think I read somewhere that um, there's some other scenes that are maybe not faked, but embellished, like Chris Holmes. The Chris Holmes scene would also be the other um, big, well-known shot from this one in which Chris, we'll get to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll we'll get there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but for the most part, aside from Darlene Petrinocchio, uh, the probation officer, most of the faces we see in this film are either extremely young or um, early middle-aged rock and rollers. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, with the exception of one of the worst people in this documentary, and we'll talk about him soon, but the club owner. Ah, yes. I have uh, plenty that I would like to say about about that particular fella, but we'll get there when we get there. You you take it from here, Jordan. Where do you want to steer this ship? So, like you said, it's kind of hard to like review this movie in the sense of like any sort of linear discussion because it's a lot of interviews and a lot of quick cuts with like well-known bands, up-and-coming bands, unknown bands, and just sometimes fans and random people. And it's there's a little bit of cohesion where like we're talking about drugs now, we're talking about playing live, we're talking about women, but it's you, we can't really hit a straight line when talking about this. So it's really just a bunch of high points. Um, and this movie's a good encapsulation of where heavy metal was in the late 80s because we do have a lot of hair metal glam metal we do have a couple of like thrash bands that show up and then we also have kiss alice cooper and aerosmith aerosmith is in there there the the interview segments with steven tyler and joe perry are worthwhile, I would say, even though I don't think that their music has anything to do with what's going on here. But Kiss, that that those segments are inexcusable. <laughs> and I remember reading an interview with Penelope Spears where she talked about setting up interviews with them, and Gene Simmons like specifically asked for something like, I don't want anything cheesy, I want classy. And he does his interview in a lingerie shop with scantily clad women walking around him trying stuff on. Yeah. Um, Paul Stanley uh, conducts every bit of his interview segment uh, while three half-naked women are physically touching him. (laughs) He's just pawing at his neon leggings. Yeah, he's reclined in some kind of billowy daybed with these uh, with these. Uh, women with incredibly long butts uh, touching him. Um, <clears throat> it was the era of the long butt. You know what? I think it's coming back, I, and I'm ready for it. I gotta say, uh, the I guess what, what do we call the high cut, high waisted bikini at the time? I think it's gonna come back. It's gonna be the next thing. You got the high waisted jeans, so it's summertime now. We'll just have to 
be on the lookout. We'll need a, our fashion correspondent to let us know. I asked my wife about this because I saw a woman whale tailing the other day. She's like, yeah, dude, it's come, It's it's been back. <laughs> it's like the low cut pants and the whale tail. Uh, so I assume we're going backwards in time now from the late 90s. We're going to get to the late 80s any day now. Uh, anyway, uh, Kiss, aside from like the the visual shock of seeing them being huge fucking lectures have relatively nothing to say in this film. Uh, is there anything that sticks out to you at all? Uh, I suppose they're well-spoken for what they're talking about, which is their favorite subject themselves yes. and then women. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the heavy metal scene specifically, not really, but just the general you know, music performance and debauchery that was rock music in the late 80s. So fine they don't take away from the movie they don't add anything to the specific small scene but okay there they are with their stupid perms and women pawing on them i guess there you go it's just it's weird because by this point in the late 80s kiss had been a band for almost 20 fucking years you know like you guys are old as fuck in compared to everybody else here uh, they had their they had the resurgence, I suppose, around that time again, taking off the paint and lick it lick up, it up yeah. And, yeah, all of that. So fair enough, they were still popular at that time. And we've seen in our ongoing reading old reviews, Kiss shows up all over those metal magazines in the late '80s, and for some like Kerrang, still showing up in the late nineties. Yeah. With all the psycho circus shit, they really made a big comeback there. That was, I I initially got suckered into listening to kiss in the late nineties because like they had all this cool Todd McFarlane art. And I was like, Oh, this must be the heaviest band in the world. And then I listened to it. I'm like, this shit sucks. This is, this is music for old people. (laughs) Yeah. They had the psycho circus music video. That was all Todd McFarlane computer graphics late 90s computer stuff so i could see how you get suckered into that and it's like oh this sucks yeah um i i I didn't find i guess uh the true heavy metal kiss lick it up until far later unfortunately um aerosmith themselves though uh again uh they they seem to have a pretty world weary point of view uh for this entire thing that i think actually helps ground the film this is the only time you'll ever hear me say anything complimentary about aerosmith (laughs) it's kind of like behold the ravages of heavy metal age yeah yeah they're 35 in this movie which is the age that i currently am um which i don't want to think about too much and they're just clearly like beaten and broken (laughs) i am older than they were in their interviews and i have to say i look better than they did um steven tyler is looking pretty rough in this uh joe perry i think he's just always looked the exact fucking same which is to say not that great um and spherus asks him like have you have you made much money in this business they're like yeah millions of dollars and she asked, where did it all go? And, you know, they're just like, up my nose. <laughs> they are pretty honest, for the most part, about their drug usage and their debauchery and all their problems. And uh, I think Steven Tyler talks about, like, meeting his heroes and Rolling Stones and just trading drugs with them. Yeah, he, and, and he said, like, uh, you know, Keith Richards is my friend. We trade drugs I've been sober for 11 months, but I don't think he ever will be. <laughs> it's like, he's probably not still still not sober today. And they're both still alive. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, I, 
I, I don't know what he's been doing, uh, aside from, like, uh, I think marrying, like, 20-year-old women while looking like uh, the actual rotting flesh of the earth. Uh, but it's working for him, so good for him. One funny thing I did like during, uh, later on, when Aerosmith popped up is the Penelope Spears had asked, um, maybe it was, I think it was Faster Pussycat, about using bandanas and scarves <laughs> on their microphone stand. And then she asked Aerosmith about it. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, yep. Joe Perry says, uh, yeah, Steven should get a royalty every time it happens. You know, I write something, I get a royalty. What does he get? <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty good stuff. Uh, Faster Pussycat um, gets a lot of shine in this in this documentary. Um they are a name that, aside from this, I've only ever seen in occasional blabbermouth headlines that I've never clicked on. <laughs> are, are you very familiar with this band? They're one of those bands that shows up on the monster ballads list of mm-hmm. 80s bands. Faster Pussycat shows up on one of those. Um, I think they had their moment. I could not tell you what their one song was, but there were a lot of bands like that. Yep. I think they get a lot of shine in this movie because weren't they like co-owners of the cat house, yeah. Uh, time it down. Uh, hey. who, yeah, what seriously, man? Come on. Uh, what, what is uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying to, to pull up the actual uh, Wikipedia page for Faster Pussycat now because I wanted to read Timey Down's real name. Would okay. you like to know his real name? I have it, Gustav Molvik. So, fair enough, Timey Down may be an improvement, <laughs> but yes, uh. Gustav Molnick and Ricky Rackman, former toilet radio guests, shocking, right? Uh, owner, co-owners of the Cat House Club on the Sunset Strip. We probably could have got more time at the Cat House because I think it was a good representation of like the gross LA strip scene, where they were talking about how we don't turn the air conditioning on, so the women don't wear as many clothes and. Bands play here just so their drink tabs get taken care of. And that when I think L.A. heavy metal in the '80s, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think it's Rackman or Timey Down, one of the two. Is like uh, we opened this club because we wanted to party every night of the week, but we didn't want to clean up after ourselves. <laughs> uh, really good stuff. Really great time in in this country's history. Um, so. Uh, Faster Pussycat is one of the featured bands in the documentary and that they get uh, performances. Uh, they themselves get two songs back to back doing a song called, shit, was it The Cat House or Playing at the Cat House, something like that? Something. Uh, uh, a, a very, very poorly written song about the club that they own. Uh, they're going to go to the cat house and they're going to uh, fuck someone and then they're going to go back to the cat house and they're going to fuck someone. I think is the synopsis of the lyrics. Is that what you got? That's kind of like most of the songs from that era. Like, Maybe the location has changed. Like in Girls, 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 they name drop other strip clubs. Yeah, yeah. This one was, we only went to one one club, I guess. Uh, so so uh, before you go on, I did look it up and I specifically looked up Monster Ballads. Mm-hmm. Faster Pussycat does have a song on there, House of Pain. I see. I'm not familiar with that one, man. Are you? I think they play three seconds of the song okay, okay. Uh, in the commercial where it's talking about 
living in a house of pain. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. All those time life, uh, you know, compilations. I, I, I know three seconds of a song that I've otherwise never heard in my life, <laughs> but I know those three seconds really well. This, the single disc version was eventually certified platinum wow. by the RIAA in 1999, while the two-disc version containing 35 songs was certified gold in the same year. I gotta wonder, like, the Time Life, like, uh, operations management here, like, how much did it cost to, like, get the rights to put these things on here, and how much did they spend advertising at 3 a.m. on local access channels? (laughs) I think this was uh, this was at the time before you could easily find these songs mm-hmm. without having to buy all the albums. So it was probably a good deal for faded 80s people to kind of relive their youth one more time as they're dropping their kids off to middle school. So it was probably worth I mean, we know the commercials pretty well. If oh, we played sure. it right now, we'd be like, I remember this song and this song. They taught us how to love. Ballads, 35 powerful hits on two CDs and two cassettes. It's awesome! White Snake. Winger. Rush delivery available. Every bad boy has his soft side. Get Monster Ballads. To order, call the number on your screen. This 35-track collection is not sold in stores. Oh, yeah, Mr. Big, Cinderella. So it, it was probably one of the last times where it actually worked out. I'm the only one wants to be with you. With you. <laughs> so this is interesting. Apparently the label that put out Monster Ballads Razor and tie. Whoa. Like the Christian label? I guess so. Huh. I gotta say, it's been a big year for Christianity on this show. (laughs) (laughs) We're slowly converting everyone. That's what's (laughs) happening. Exactly. Um, Sorry. Uh, So, uh, Faster Pussycat, they get a second song on here uh, called Bathroom Wall. And if you think about the number of uh, big hit songs, songs songs about bathroom walls. This is by far the shittiest one. <laughs> the 80s were just the high time for doing gross things in bathrooms. It, it, undeniable. It's true. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, get, uh, they, they get both of their songs played. They get little uh, excerpts of interviews with the full band in between the songs. Uh, where they give a little bit of insight on what it's like to be a band the size of Pussy, Faster Pussycat in those days, where they are relatively new to the scene and trying to get accomplished, uh, or established, rather. They share, like, um, you know, we go out on the road, uh, we make $1,000 a night, uh, we do, you know, four or five shows a week, but it costs us, like, $2,000 a day to be out there. <laughs> I gotta say, your your economy is all fucked up. I mean, it's still fucked up. We're seeing all sorts of stories come out now about 
even the bigger bands losing thousands of dollars every day. I I, I agree with you. I, I'm not saying that that's that's not right. But with like a band like this specifically, where they probably went out there with a full crew. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was necessary, but they definitely did it. Um, but there were other uh, other acts here that we get a lot of uh, a lot of time with. Uh, opening it up was uh, the first performance of Lizzie Borden. Uh, with, with a cover. With a cover of Born to be Wild, a song I've always hated. <laughs> yeah, there's, Lizzie Borden's interesting because I do like one song by them, and it's when they like reformed and it was just Lizzie Borden and some hired guns, and they completely changed their image, and it was a much more modern metal sound. And then everything else they've done, I haven't been interested in. Um, and they're still playing to this day. Yeah. They're still playing festivals and putting out new music. And their thing now with Lizzie Borden, if uh, people want to look it up like on Google Images, it's like a whole outfit, stage show, like makeup. And they really do put a lot of effort into it, especially compared to other bands from the same era that are like limping along and trying to like recapture their like glam stuff their hair metal stuff they're still doing that with him it's like he has it's like his face and then there's a face makeup on one side and another one on the other side and he has uh, legion of doom spike shoulder pads it's a whole <laughs> deal so credit to him for being creative still and still trying to put on shows so that's cool I mean, but beyond that, we like don't really get much from the band. We, we get a few interviews in the beginning, and then they're just gone. We don't, uh, which is a shame because I wanted to look a little bit longer at uh, Lizzie's haircut, which is just defies explanation. <laughs> it's a lot of hairspray. We could talk about Seduce for a minute. I I would like to. So Seduce is the band from Detroit, right? And they're extremely from Detroit compared to everyone else. If you listen to them when they talk, they're the band. It's a three piece. They're kind of a thrash band. I was I had forgotten that they were like heavier than some of the other bands that get played. But the thing is, their image and their gimmick is still very much wrapped up in hair metal, which probably was a detriment to their career. And they're driving around being interviewed around L.A. with the drop top convertible. And uh, aren't they one of the bands where they're like, well, we're going to get signed in a couple weeks. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um I, I I read uh, a pretty great uh, where are they now where are they now piece in the Guardian uh, that covers Seduce at the time. But, you know, in this in this documentary, these guys are very young. They're talking about like, yeah, we're gonna be on top of the world. Uh, they ask the guitarist like, where do you see yourself in ten years? He's like, oh, I'm gonna be retired. Uh, I've I'm gonna have all my money working for me. You know, stocks, bonds, investments, properties. Like, I'm gonna I'm smart. See, I'm a business guy. I'm like, okay. <laughs> And just to counteract that, Seduce doesn't have a Wikipedia page. No, unfortunately not. Um, so let's see if I can pull up the exact uh, article here in front of me. Uh, by the time that this movie had come out, uh, one of the members, uh, like by the time, you know, from filming to the time that this movie premiered, um, one of the members had already joined Armored Saint. <laughs> so the band was completely dead. Um, oh, that's the smart move to do. And I, that kind of happened a lot. We talk about on our bonus podcast episode this coming month on Patreon, patreon.com slash the of hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read uh, an interview that Yingwei Malmstein did 
where he talks about like how he just wanted to come to America, played with shitty bands he didn't care about, and that was just a stepping stone for him to do what he wanted to do. So I'm sure that happened a lot. People hooked up with their band in some podunk one-horse town or some small city without a huge scene just to get to L.A. to meet other people in bigger bands and move on. Absolutely. Um, by the way, I, I keep getting... Um ads for discounted Groupon Ingwe Malmsteen tickets. <laughs> Is it one of those buy three, get one free? Uh, it's. I think it full just 50% off. Like we have clearly uh, priced these tickets wrong for what this is and the demand for it. Um, so uh, this piece from 2015 that caught up with some of the members from Seduce Um the guy here says, you know, we had high hopes, but the band broke up pretty quickly. At that time, everyone wanted a big, flamboyant singer like Vince Neil to look good on MTV, but we were a trio with no obvious frontman, so that fucked us. And I hated California, but I ended up living there for 10 years. Bought a sports car, fell in love, did a lot of work in the movies, post-production camera guy, shampoo commercials, whatever I could get a piece of, but I never gave up playing music. I'm now playing in crud with a singer from Sponge. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Sponge, isn't it? It is always fucking Sponge. Um, it says here that one of the other guys uh, from the band plays in Negative Approach now. <laughs> Every, <laughs> I know, right? Every once in a while, we'll play a Seduce gig, and a couple thousand people show up, and it's like we play a high school reunion. We're still friends. A thousand? Really? A thousand? I don't know about that. We're still friends. None of us are destitute, and we've all carved a niche for ourselves without having to answer to anybody. I look pretty much the same, and I've had a fantastic life. So, I've even got a couple of investments, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as coming out of the 80s, metal scene alive, that sounds very good. Not bad. I, and I gotta say, like in terms of some of the real shit heels featured here, I don't really have anything against Seduce. <laughs> if you want to talk shit heels, we could talk London. Let's talk about London, man. These guys are fucking assholes. <laughs> Just probably some of the worst people in this movie, and they're all fucking hideous. Truly uh, ugly inside and out. Uh, but the great news is, you know, uh, when we're introduced to London, they say um, essentially we're like a training school for rock stars because somebody joins our band and they immediately leave us to join a much bigger, more successful band. Uh, you know, yeah. Just looking looking at their Wikipedia page, their former members uh, rivals like Moto Grader, but it includes Blackie Lawless, mm -hmm. Nikki Six, mm -hmm. Izzy Stradlin, mm -hmm. Steven Adler, mm -hmm. and Slash. Yeah, boy, they all got real rich and famous, and y'all did not. <laughs> and on on their current members list, you know, you have real real names, and then you also have playing bass who does have a Wikipedia page, and I'm a little afraid to click on it, Billy the Fist. Um, I would not click that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a, a goon tough guy from a 1930s comic book. I, I was going to say it sounds like a character in 8mm. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I don't know about that, man. Um, and, of, of course, their vocalist, Nadir DePriest. Nadir DePriest. What the fuck that was? Yeah. Uh, awful awful band um so one of my favorite bits in this is their music is terrible by the way and they get two songs uh one of which is a song called russian winter and which <laughs> yeah. 
Their vocalist tries and fails uh, to light a uh, Soviet flag on fire. Uh, apparently that footage we get of just a little bit of fire coming up, uh, it had taken probably about 15 minutes to get to that point. <laughs> You'd figure with all the hairspray, someone would be able to set that off pretty quickly, but nope, it's the Soviet flags are made of sterner stuff. Yeah. So, uh, take that, take that you jerks. I, I, again, like it's such a funny thing than this band, like out of nowhere being like, and also fuck Russia and like, where do, where do you get off having any kind of political ideals? <laughs> I don't think it's a real political ideal. I think it's just easy thing. They're the bad guys, so let's write a song about it. I know. I saw Rambo 3. Of course. It's just like, where do you get off even pretending to have any idea of what you're talking about? Like, your t- entire thing is we, you know, drink and do drugs and we fuck. It's like I trying to step outside of this lane. I think I think this was disastrous. This was what really killed the band. <laughs> yeah, it's the music's not good. They're silly. Um, like I said, very unattractive guys talking about how all they're all having gross sex in different places and getting handcuffs to desk drawers and doing illegal things in Arizona. It's all just skeevy. Very skeevy. Uh, I found a few different pieces, like a follow-up years after the fact, like, what are the London guys doing? And every one of them, despite the fact that there's about a 10-year range between the four articles that I found, says the exact same shit. Like, the, the guy that they talked to in London is says the same pieces over and over again, even though these were fresh interviews. He says, London were interviewed in the IRS records office on Sunset Boulevard, which was next to a modeling agency, so it was fucking amazing. We had cocaine under the chairs. If anything, the film was sanitized, because this was the era of Tipper Gore and the parental advisory sticker. My life was about drugs, vodka, and girls. It was a crazy time. We had a lot of fun. In the film, I talked about the size of my dick. It was a fun comment that I didn't expect to get taken seriously. We had no idea that all the other bands would get so big that their shit wouldn't stink. I was filmed trying to burn the flag on stage for a song, Russian Winter. It wasn't anything against the Russian people, but it was just drug and alcohol-fueled silliness. I didn't know the flag was fireproof. I still have it. It's at my mom's house. That's funny. That should be in the movie. I, I should somehow like retroactively put in these interviews back in. He says here, I've been clean for 19 years and I've done everything from construction to being a stylist, but I haven't given up on London. We've done gigs where the crowd have been yelling, fuck you, you suck. And we played to 20 people in Arizona, but we had a couple of hundred at the whiskey the other night. We've more or less reactivated the 1989 lineup to work on a new album. I'm not sure the film helped or hindered us, but it's been 27 years and I'm talking to you from beside the pool. That's what happens when you have a wonderful girlfriend who has a shit ton of properties. (laughs) So I see time has not changed him. Not even a little bit. Uh, Because that's one of the things that the, the bands do talk about in the movie is finding girlfriends or women that have money so that... They can get new clothes or, in some cases, eat. Yeah, which is such like a uh, 
one of my favorite tropes in Airheads is, you know, Brendan Fraser doesn't have a fucking job. Like he, go, he rides up and down the Sunset Strip on his motorcycle looking cool and occasionally goes to band practice. He leaves it to his girlfriend to like work a job and actually provide rent money. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad that they got that one very true to form there. Uh, all these guys are like, you know, girls bring, got to bring a sack of groceries before you can come over to my place. It's like, okay. Uh, so many of these guys just completely fucking hideous as well. I feel like uh, uh, out of all of the wild exaggerations pictured here, the uh, the number of fellas talking about how many girls they get, it's just, just not right. A good part of the movie is talking about their look and men wearing makeup and some people that are interviewed, some of the women are just like, yeah, it looks so hot, it looks so good. Another one like, no, no, I like men to, to not wear my makeup. So it's kind of uh, a nice juxtaposition of that look at that time. And some of the guys are like, I have women put it on for me. I like it. And some of them you can tell it's it's the thing that you're supposed to do. So that's why they're doing it. Oh, yeah. But for they're like, sure. dump, they're dumpy, gross looking guys. Well, I think that, uh, you know, they ask all the guys, like, what do you think about makeup? And eventually they get to Lemmy from Motorhead. He says, good luck to him. Wish I was pretty. <laughs> Lemmy's, Lemmy is so good in this movie. He's not in it enough, but he does uh, interviews. It looks like in the Hollywood Hills yeah. uh, as the sun's coming up and there's traffic behind him. And again, it's now that he's been gone a long time, you sometimes forget. And then you watch like old interviews and just realizing uh, just how good he was and has good points to make, especially next to some of these ridiculous bands. It's just, he's very matter of fact and he's Lemmy. I, uh, oddly enough, Lemmy harbored some resentment about this documentary. Specifically, he thought Spheris tried to make him look stupid. Uh, in his, in his, uh, his autobiography, he wrote that, like, he didn't like the way that Sphera shot him on film, like, from a, a distance. He thought that it was supposed to be belittling for some reason. Uh, maybe he felt like she was, didn't want to show him up close in his Lemmy face. I don't know. Um, I didn't capture any of that. But I, I didn't either, it, but it's, uh, you know, it's always odd to see, like, what, what somebody else thinks about their appearances. And, you know, he's like, huh. All right, maybe I should have gotten a, a close-up. Yeah, it's it's like when a band looks back on one of their albums and it's like your favorite album, you love everything on it. You're like, yeah, I, I hate that album. I'm never going to play any of that again. <laughs> it's like, oh, Damn it. Aw. This thing that means so much to me, you actually actively dislike it. Uh, so, again, you look at this, I look at this, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's great. He's so smart, so put together, especially among all these assholes. Like, I hate it. I look dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we all see ourselves in different lights. We got to talk about Odin, of course. Odin, 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 Odin. Odin. We got to talk about Odin and it's safe to say the worst person in this movie. Yeah, by far. Club owner Bill Gazzari. Bill Gazzari. How old do you think Bill Gazzari was supposed to be in this movie? I'm not sure, but it is morally and eth ethically wrong to have a actual corpse in your movie. So I had to look it up. He's only about like 62 when this film what? was made. I know. He looks like fucking 90, doesn't he? He is seconds away from death in this movie. 
he's actually about two years away from death, according to his actual death certificate. <laughs> I guess he lived real hard because he looked like one of the California raisins. Just fucking death warmed over. Just a corpse uh, that is also the most lecherous old fuck you've ever seen. And it doesn't try to hide it. It's like, when I was 18, I liked 18-year-old girls. Now that I'm 60, I still like 18-year-old girls. Just what a horrific, horrific man. We spend so much of this movie watching his... Miss Gazari dancer competition. Like, can you take a stab at describing this thing? This is a, well, they call it a sexy rock and roll contest. Uh huh. It is women dancing on stage for the delight of the men in the crowd, and some of the bands uh, from the scene are judging. And as this is going on, like, women are stripping on stage. Yeah. But this corpse of a human being will come on stage and be like, no, nah, nah, that showed a little too much. This is classy. It's not classy. <laughs> There's nothing classy about that. And this, I just so I love that immediately, everyone immediately is like, boo, fuck you, old man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there when they're doing gyrations and dances and some uh, gymnastic routines. And it's uh, cut in with, interviews with some of them talking about like what it means to be a gazari girl oh god and how it's all gonna like launch their careers as being a singer and an actress and being music videos and all of these great things are going to be the next honey contained and uh that doesn't happen for any of them no and it's you know it's a what watching these women talk Made me realize, yeah, there's a probably a very good reason why you can't get quaaludes anymore because they are so looted out. Like, <laughs> they are zonked. This has been a wonderful honor and a great year of my life. And I, after I'm going to work on my modeling and also my actressing. <laughs> I wonder how much of that is drugs and how much of that is just kind of being a little slow. Tough to say, you know, one is not helping the other. Let's say that much. Um, I found a obituary for Bill Gazzari from the Los Angeles Music Awards, whatever the fuck that is. Uh, he So he died, um, let's see, 1991. Uh, it says here that uh, for three decades, Gazzari was known as the Sunset Boulevard's white-hatted godfather of rock and roll because his nightclubs on the Strip provided a stage and an amplification for a myriad undiscovered rock stars, and he unabashedly claimed credit for launching the careers of Jim Morrison and the Doors, Sonny and Cher, Motley Crue, Tina Turner, Van Halen, David Lee Roth, The Birds, Poison, Guns N' Roses, and Warrant, to name a few. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that was me. I did um, that. I'm looking at the Gazari's Wikipedia page. Amazingly, there is one. And, of course, I had to see if there was any sort of controversy sections. The only one is pay-to-play. I mean... The club was part of the controversial pay-to-play concept in the 1980s, along with other major Hollywood nightclubs that showcased bands with original songs. As many as four bands per night would each buy 100 to 200 tickets for the <sighs> club, around $5 each handing over in advance hundreds of dollars to the owner for a 45-minute slot. Soon, many bands were spending as much time promoting, handing out flyers, advertising in local magazines, and building mailing lists as they were on songwriting, practicing, and actually getting live. 
Young hungry bands such as Poison, Motley Crue, Van Halen, Guns N' Roses became early masters of self-promotion as a result, developing street-smart business skills. I believe Sma- uh, Slash admitted to selling Quaaludes on the strip while also promoting the band. I mean, that's just good business. If you're out there, you might as well make a fucking dime. Um, so that's the, the only thing to make it to Wikipedia, but I can assure you all sorts of other awful things happen there as well. I mean, you don't even have to like insinuate anything. You look at this and it's fucking obvious. <laughs> Um, well, uh, on this page too, I I'm being proven wrong. Some women have gone on to bigger and better things after being a Miss Gazari dancer. Who you got? Including future Playboy playmate and Hugh Hefner girlfriend Barbie Benton, and future television star Catherine Bach. Catherine Bach, huh? Better known for playing Daisy Duke in Dukes of Hazard. Oh, holy shit! Yeah, I know Daisy Duke. <laughs> uh, well, there we go. Uh, Bill Gazari did that. That was all him. Uh, Gazari, in addition to doing all of his shit, spends some time uh, saying that the next uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, with their real sexy singer, uh, is is going to take over. It's the band Odin, of course. He, he doesn't say sexy. Oh. He says, he's a foxy guy. He's a foxy guy. Goddamn. Um, and we get, we get to watch Odin perform. And, like, even... I know that I don't really like most of these bands or whatever, but this is clearly the worst one, right? Like, it sounds I, so much shittier than all the others, like, less professional, I mean. Yeah, they're just, they're not tight, they're not cohesive. I can understand the Guns N' Roses comparison, because the vocalist does sound like Axl Rose. Yeah, he has that screeching cat kind of vibe. Um, while, while wearing chaps. Assless chaps, of course. Um, just... I should I should say that's not quite right because uh, chaps that by their own nature are assless, assless. So like he specifically cut holes in his pants to make it assless chaps. Uh, it's it's a very interesting look. Uh, the band, of course, uh, has some time uh, where they get to uh, be interviewed in Penelope Spheres' hot tub, uh, and they get again asked these super super well known uh, questions like. What happens if you don't make it? What, what, what did you think about all of this? That's one of the best parts of the movie is asking all these randos what happens if you don't make it. And everyone says, but I will make it. But I'm going to make it. It'll happen. I'm, I'm destined to make it. And uh, with Odin there in a hot tub surrounded by women and the vocalist, Randy O, says he's he's going to be a millionaire. It's going to happen. And he's going to be bigger than Jim Morrison and The Doors and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Uh, Robert Plant, bitch. Jim Morrison, bitch. Randy from Odin, the guy. <laughs> and, like, within the same interview, he also talks about, like, if he doesn't become a star, he's going to kill himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, like, very upfront. I will kill myself. <laughs> and, uh, she also asks him about drug usage, and he says, like, well, I've OD'd a few times, so, like, I don't do drugs anymore. And the women that are with him laugh. <laughs> this is a different time, man. This is a different time. Although, like, by that same token... 
when the questions around uh, drug use come around, you know, it's the same kind of face as all of these kids that are like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. They're also saying, I would never touch a drug. I, I will never, I, because I'm going to be a star, I can't let drugs get in the way of doing all of that. And it's just such a, a strange, like, encapsulation of Reagan America, like, uh, say no to drugs, but also you can be a huge celebrity if you just try really hard. I, I don't, I don't oh, know, then. McGruff can only do so much. He got the message out, and he reached the kids, but uh, once you head out to the L.A. Strip, there's only so much he could do. Really, uh, really dire stuff here. Uh, anyway, a follow-up is that uh, Randy from Odin did kind of uh, turn it around. He's a, a Teamster trucker now, so we salute him for his service. Uh, glad that you could do something real with your life rather than this shit. He's one of the union people, so he's a, good, good for him. He's a union it's good that, man. It's like, you're just working a job and you're still alive. You're not desperately trying to recapture stuff. So, hey, drive a truck. Nothing wrong with that. For sure. I mean, and a lot of these guys are still trying. They, they know it's too late, but they're still doing it because I guess what the fuck else are you going to do? Um, was that all of the... No, no, no. There's one more featured performer, of course. How could we forget? Probably the most famous performer in all of this would be Chris Holmes of Wasp. Um, let, let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about Chris Holmes, completely iconic, wearing leather in the pool, covering himself, dousing himself with vodka, while his mother sits in a chair and watches him. His blue-haired mother just sitting in a chair as he's talking about doing all the drugs and having all the sex and opening bottles of Smirnoff vodka and just pouring it on himself. It's really, I mean, it's iconic. It's darkly funny, but it's also kind of heartbreaking too, isn't it? It is, you know, just because you can see him recognizing that he has a problem. He says, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I'm a piece of crap. He, uh, he doesn't like playing as much while his mother sits there silently and just kind of watches him. I guess it's good to know he's still alive. I know he, he has a lot of health problems. R- likely related in, to all of this, yeah. Yeah, likely related to a lot of this. Um, but it is kind of one of those slow motion car crashes where you know it's awful, but you do laugh a little bit and you can't turn away. Because you can't believe what you're seeing. You see this person who's a star at this point killing himself and knowing that he's doing it and like can't stop. So Chris says, when Penelope asked me to be in the Decline movie, I went, why don't you ask Blackie Lawless? She says, well, he wants money and I don't have the budget. So I agreed to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It was supposed to be on a Sunday, but Penelope called me Saturday morning and goes, can you film it today, Chris? I go, well, I've been up for three days partying since I got home from London. She goes, well, do you mind? I said no. <laughs> so right when I was going out the door, my mom pulled up and I said, Mom, I, I got to do this interview. And she didn't have anything else going on, so she came along. <laughs> I haven't had a drink since 1996. I went on an aversion therapy program to quit drinking. It's not the taste that turns me off. It's what it does to you. If I was still be drink, still drinking, I'd be dead now. I guarantee you that. You want to know the truth? I was never happy in Wasp. And it says here, long sigh. 
I had this thumb on me, controlling me. Blackie was always threatening to be threatening me to be thrown out of the band, or this or that. And on top of it, the person was jealous of me being me. I never realized that until the last day I ever saw him. And when he told me that, right to my face. Now when I see people in young bands, I tell them not to trust each other. When you do a record deal, don't trust nobody, especially your best friend. If money comes into the situation, it changes everything. I go, the closest person to you? There's a chance he's gonna screw you over. They look at me like I'm nuts, but I've been doing it a long time. I know. <laughs> and just yesterday, there was an article on Blabbermouth. Ex-Wasp guitarist Chris Holmes blast Russia's invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> well, good to know he's still doing okay. So he's got one up on Joe Lynn Turner. Uh, take that, man. I gotta read this. Prior to launching into the Neil Young classic, Rockin' in the Free World, Holmes told the crowd, this was at the Monsters of Rock cruise, we're still killing each other. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck's with that, man? I don't understand. It's stupid. It's stupid, man. All this shit. This song goes out to... This song goes out to all the people in Ukraine. I look at the shit and just think about if that was me living there and that that fucking cocksucker Putin I'd love to get my I'd love to get my hand on that fucker's neck man and shove something up his ass so fucking far one man ruining this many people it just makes me sick over what we're gonna never get off this planet until we all join as one or else we'll destroy it and the human race will never exist anymore. It'll probably be two, three, four thousand years till we stop killing each other. But this next song goes out to all the people in Ukraine. I've been to the communist countries that were held down. It ain't cool. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Chris Holmes. <laughs> that says it all. Ugh, what more can you say? Um, let's Let's talk about one other character that actually does pretty well in this film. Again, it's tough for me to give this guy credit, but Dave Mustaine is maybe the smartest voice in this entire film. <laughs> they come in at the very end. They do. Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't make sense either. Megadeth does not fit in with any of the rest of this band. They're, they're a thrash band. This is not a hair metal band at all. And, you know, it's, it's a clear change in tone where Mustaine does not countenance this monkey shit. You know, he's like, you know, uh, there's real things going on, like there are nukes and stuff. <laughs> like, wearing makeup is fine or whatever, but it's kind of stupid. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 really interesting that these guys have a clear work ethic that's head and shoulders above everybody else in this film as well. Yeah, they talk about, like, practicing and yeah. writing songs and having substance, which is... Weird after seeing an hour and 20 minutes of teased up hair and talking about groupies and getting little cuts and bits from bands that you've just never heard of. So interesting to end the movie on that note. It is. Now, there's another character in the movie. When we're talking about I'm going to make it, I'm just I'm going to make it. What happens if you don't make it? Well, that won't happen. I'm going to make it. We got to talk about one particular guy. There's a fella with uh, split white and black skunk stripe hair that is probably almost certainly the thumbnail to this movie on YouTube, I think. (laughs) 
<laughs> One of the most recognizable people in this movie. And you found some interesting information about him. So I don't think they ever say his name in the movie. I think they might say he was in Tough. Yeah, he's in Tough. T-U-F-F, but we don't really get all that much. But throughout the, the little clips he does, he's a little like soft-spoken and a little spacey. And with the teased up half head of black and white cookie hair and the makeup. and But I'm going to make it. But it's going to happen. And we all laugh. Ha, ha, ha. You know, this guy never heard of him. Never done anything with his life. Not true. No. He, Not he, necessarily with the music part of it. But he did make something of himself. And this is Gabriel Martin Reed. So Gabriel Martin Reed, if you'd like, you can read. Um, let's see. Uh, justice.gov slash uh, promoter who defrauded investors in concerts and WWE events that never took place sentenced to nearly five years in federal prison. <laughs> if you have a Department of Justice press release about you, you're probably fucking up. You're probably fucked up. There is an extensive, very long Rolling Stone article about him. You could look up Gabriel promotions. You could look up uh, decline of Western civilization, grifter. It's the, I think the article's called The Heavy Metal Grifter. So it's worth your time to read this because it goes into a lot of specifics about how, like, this guy did become a music promoter. He ended up hooking up with Gene Simmons and a whole bunch of other bands to put on concerts. But somewhere along the line, he ended up defrauding a bunch of south american possible drug cartel warlords wrong people trying to put on yeah the worst people you want to defraud and upset um but this press release on justice.gov a promoter who bilked investors promoters and performers who invested in concerts and world wrestling entertainment events stealing at least 1.7 million dollars from the victims was sentenced today to 57 months in federal prison gabriel martin reed 47 a former Malibu resident who currently lives in McKinney, Texas. Do you know where McKinney is? Yeah, it's uh, just north of the DFW where I live. So you may run into him at a show one day. It's possible. If, uh, he, if he's on some sort of work release program or doesn't have an ankle monitor on. <laughs> Reed pleaded guilty in November to one count of wire fraud and admitted that he defrauded his victims by making false promises and then using their money for personal expenses. Reed, who conducted business under the name Gabe Reed Productions, took money from victims after falsely telling them that events would take place, certain performers had agreed to participate in those events, and their funds would be used to organize and promote the events. Instead of using the money for concerts and other events as promised, Reed used investor funds to pay his rent, utility bills, and travel expenses. According to court documents, for almost nine years, Reed represented himself as a promoter and organizer of hard rock and wrestling events. Reed solicited investors by touting what he claimed were long-standing relationships with well-known musicians, showing props from alleged previous tours, and fabricating records relating to music events. According to a sentencing memorandum filed by prosecutors, Reed operated a sophisticated scheme, which included creating bogus email addresses and distributing fabricated artist contracts, bank statements, and correspondence to convince his victims that their funds were being used legitimately invested. Hmm. When he plead guilty, Reed specifically admitted defrauding one Los Angeles investor who agreed to put up $100,000 into a concert in 2016 Reed was calling Titans of Rock. 
However, many of the promised artists had not agreed to participate in the purported tour. Uh, and there are other articles that go into uh, depth about this. Like, there's an article from 2016 from the Dallas Observer. Mystery rock promoter Gabe Reed left a trail of enemies <laughs> and lawsuits around the world. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, part of it does talk about how he, like, had to hide under sheets because he was afraid South American promoters were coming to kill him. Oh, my God. That's incredible. The South American promoters whose shows were canceled had their shows canceled because they refused to pay the full fee for their shows per the contracts they signed, Reed insists. Each and every one of them were given ample opportunity to make good on their obligations, but they refused and left us with no alternative but to cancel their shows. We went as far as to extend their time frame to comply to after the first show of the tour, but they refused to pay allegedly because of poor ticket sales. Reed says he sympathized with the knife-wielding Ecuadorian gentleman wow, uh, who was previously mentioned in this article, but he simply couldn't take the financial risk to host a show in hopes that he would be paid afterward. In the end, this is business. If a promoter can't pay an artist their fee, there's a good chance they will not be able to pay for the fundamentals of staging a concert of this magnitude. He canceled seven of the ten shows, despite fans treating the rock and roll all-stars as if they were the Beatles coming to America. South Americans weren't happy with this decision, Reed says, so a security detail made the decision that it was best for him to leave the tour. Contrary to an account, there were no locals paid off and no one was smuggled out with blankets. Reed further claims that his other tour, Metal All-Stars, has played Eastern Europe and South America since the South American debacle. He also says Kisses Gene Simmons has remained a good friend and he has no issues doing business with him. Uh Uh-huh. Not everyone who's worked with Reed agrees. Even Pro Holding CV claimed that it had paid $270,000 to Reed for Rock and Roll All-Stars to perform in Venezuela, but Reed canceled the concert and refused to refund the money, according to Even Pro's 2012 lawsuit filed in Dallas County. Michael K. Hurst and A. Sean Brown, both Dallas-based attorneys, represented Even Pro, which won a judgment for more than $300,000, but still haven't been able to collect the money. People have called us looking for him, Brown says, but we haven't been able to help them because he's a slippery guy. Have you? It goes on. He, he defrauded an Argentinian concert promoter uh, who has said that he kept $150,000 deposit. Uh, he had a Motley Crue concert in Argentina, but with different promoters. He admitted making false representation. Uh, this promoter lost over a million dollars in profits. Jesus. It's, on and on and on. There's all sorts of stuff. And there's uh, another article where it talks about uh, he promised a woman to help her, her daughter have some sort of career and defrauded them. It's a whole bunch of shit. And he went to federal prison for five years because of it. It's pretty impressive stuff, man. Um, have you ever heard of the rock and roll all stars in your life? <laughs> I, you know, if I have, it's just one of those things where people are just automatically tune it out. Yeah, that because makes it's sense. like it's. It's old guy shit where we can't possibly be psyched to hear that one surviving member of Enough Z Enough is playing on a cruise of the Caribbean. Like, cool, I will never, ever go to this. Like, okay, I, I pulled this up from a different Dallas Observer article. It says the group included uh, Guns N' Roses veterans Matt Sorum, Duff McKagan, and Gilby Clark, Joe Elliott of Def Leppard, Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple, 
Steve Stevens of Billy Idol, Sebastian Bach of Skid Row, Ed Roland of Collective Soul, Mike Inez of Alice in Chains, Billy Duffy of the Colts, and Gene Simmons. And what I think is if you combine all of these musicians together, you're going to get something that sounds like absolute fucking dog shit, man. Like, yes, this ain't for us. And I mean, it's not even for probably people who like that type of music. I think it's for people that like want to have gross middle aged old people sex while grinding to uh, one of the songs from Monster Ballad. So there is another uh, piece I found here from a, um, a site called Louder Sound that is an interview with a different person from Tough, Stephen Hansetter. That's the guy who's like, a girl bought me these boots. <laughs> he says, um, uh, I'm going to skip down here, but he says, the pinnacle for Tough was getting on the MTV countdown. We were the number three video with I Hate Kissing You Goodbye in September 1991. But right around then, Nirvana released Smells Like Teen Spirit. Suddenly, there were grunge bands like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam on the MTV countdown, in the magazines, and on the radio. So just as we were beginning to make an impact, they came along and we had no chance. We'd had a 10-year run, but by 1995, we were playing to 40 people some nights. I remember a show in Ohio. We played for free, and two people came. The promoter said we didn't have to play, so we just hung out and played basketball. At the end of 1995, the band came to an end. I did a solo album, but I couldn't even get it reviewed. I was starting to hear about this stuff called the internet. A website? What's that? Nobody knew. But I noticed that Metal Edge was listing contact details for artists by email. Nikki Six's email address was in there. So I came up with this idea for a website called Metal Sludge, where we would make fun of the 80s, a very affectionate piss take. In the first week, we had 20 people look at it, and a year later, we were getting 25000 a day. It's still active. I encourage you to go to MetalSludge.tv right now. Metal Sludge. Too fast for sludge. Ooh. This is a very vintage website. It's still active. They're still doing stuff. But, man, this site hasn't been updated in 20 years. Man, uh, the first thing I see is a fucking interview with John Kurabi. <laughs> uh, I, if you wanted to know what that other uh, vocalist from Motley Crue was up to, you can go right here. There you go. Quiet Riot, Striper. Jeez. How is this still active? I mean, I know it's still active because it's just full of ads and ads for these awful festivals that we don't want to go to, but... Oof. Who wants to contribute to this? Well, here is a, at the bottom is one of the most uh, clicked articles from August 20th, 2004. Uh, the long and short of it, world famous penis chart. So there you go. Hmm. Uh, number one here, uh, it says uh, Art Alexakis of Everclear. Uh, it says Art has an eight inch cock. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> All right. Good to know. <laughs> Uh, what, uh, what, do, what do you think? Uh, uh, <laughs> is there anything else about this you would like to discuss? I'm just going through the lists of guys from Winger and Drowning Pool and looking at how big their dicks are. <laughs> is there photographic proof? Unfortunately, no, which means that all of this is a work of fiction. Unless I can see the proof, like, 
Yeah, I don't I don't buy a dime. I don't buy a bit of it. All right, fellas, it's time to line up. It's inspection time with Joe. <laughs> Uh, join us next week for Penis Inspection Day on the Toilet of Hell radio show. Uh, the fun has to end for right now. Or does it? As a matter of fact, I know if you go to patreon.com slash toilet of hell right now, right at this very moment, you can get hours and hours and hours of bonus episodes as well as uh, fun playlists that I spend way too long making every single fucking month and half for years. Give us a little bit of money. You get all of that stuff uh, as well as uh, our episode uh, for the Patreon this month, which it ties directly into this shit, in which we are uh, combing through 80s metal mags to get the dirt uh, all over the place. We just got dirt all over all over the fucking... We gotta get a vacuum or something. It's a huge mess. And when you say dirt, uh, there is some stuff in here that you will want to hear about. Just awful things that bands did, awful things that they say, and it's all in print. And we have it all memorialized, so it is worth your $5 just to hear some of this truly shocking stuff that people admitted. Uh, also some fun things there, too. Not all It's not all shocking. Some of it is, you know, uh, kids in Japan writing about how they want to find people that are also into Agnostic Front. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of fun letters that we read. We uh, re- read an entire article about Creed's websites that are on the Internet in 1998. And they give actual URLs like www.creedmusic.cjb.net backslash pictures slash HTML. And Joe tries to look all of them up. (laughs) It's a fun time. Uh, So, yeah, uh, give us five dollars. We'll give you all that. Uh, If we get a certain amount of money, we'll uh, keep uh, doing we'll do more like more a month. Uh, That's that's the thing. Uh, Also, T-shirts coming soon. I'll have details for you shortly. I promise. Uh, anything else? Uh, you could send us an email, toiletofhell at gmail.com, toiletofhellradio at gmail.com. Good, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter while it's still alive for the next couple of minutes. We'll see what happens. Uh, like us on Instagram. You could message us through Twitter at Joe Thrash and Kale at 365 Days of Horror. Our DMs are open and we like hearing from you. Oh, yeah. I got a very nice uh, message actually today from one of our listeners. Uh, who shared uh, an article she wrote uh, that covered some of the t- uh, ground we were talking about with uh, the D. Snyder the other day. So thank you for that. Uh, I-, I love it when you guys send me messages. Uh, chat with me. It's fun. All right. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.
are listening to 66.6 FM, Radio TOVH, The Flush.